how do you say thank you to the man who saved your life? Cactus 1549, turn left saying 270. On this day 14 years ago, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 crash-landed into the Hudson River. Cactus 1529, which engines? He lost thrust in both engines, he said. We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. Captain Sully was in the pilot seat, and Rick Elias was in seat 1D. The pilot lines up the plane with the Hudson River, and then he says three words, as unemotional three words have I ever heard. He says, brace for impact. In this special episode, Rick and Captain Sully sit down together to reflect on the experience aboard the Miracle on the Hudson from both sides and how it changed their lives forever. This is Three Things with Rick Elias and Captain Sully Sullenberg. I have been looking forward to this conversation since the day we started the podcast. Uh, today, our guest is Captain Sully, the person that not only saved my life, but I think has inspired many, many, many people to do their jobs right. Sully, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rick. It's a great pleasure as well as an honor to be here. When you grew up in Denison, Texas, did you ever think that you someday will become an ambassador, someday will testify in Congress, someday will have a museum named after you? No, absolutely not. I mean, zero. As a young child, I was shy. I didn't have a lot to say unless I had something to say. And I did not seek the limelight. I didn't ever want to be the life of the party. That wasn't something that I thought I would enjoy, or if I thought I might enjoy it, I didn't think I'd be good at it. And so quite the opposite. I was content, if not happy, to work on my own and do something that interested me and contribute in important ways, but not to be famous at all. Where did your love for aviation come from? As a kid, I remember climbing up on the roof of our house in Texas on a nice day when the visibility was good and just seeing how far I could see, you know, what's out there. You know, I was always just interested in seeing the world, seeing the sky day and night. And the other reason that I got in flying is because we lived uh, not far from an Air Force base that's not closed, but I would see the jets fly over on a daily basis. And I just thought that was fascinating. And I could, I, I could imagine how far I could go and things, places I could see and from the air and uh, especially in a jet airplane. And jets were pretty new then. Do you remember your first solo flight? Oh, absolutely. So my first solo flight uh, was in the spring of 1967. I was 16 years old. I remember when I went up by myself, as I had been told to expect, and in such a small airplane, it's significantly lighter with only me in it. And so it climbed, it took off more rapidly and climbed more rapidly. But even in that first solo flight, I, I sensed uh, what I call the sense of mastery, uh, that I was controlling the machine in all three axes, that I was managing the situation, that I was deciding when to turn base and you know, make, the, make the machine do what I want and not just be so timid on the, on the controls. But uh, you know, I, I learned quickly. And, um, do you remember the first mistake you made? 
Well, let's see. I mean, you make little mistakes, but um, we really uh, shouldn't think of uh, everything that happens that's not ideal as a mistake, you know, or an error necessarily. And we should think, especially in our personal lives, that, oh, I shouldn't beat myself up for not remembering that or not making that turn, right? What we should think of is making what we do when we fly, constant course corrections. Mm. And when we think of these, you know, little failures or little errors as, you know, realizing that you're not headed the way you want, that you didn't do that the way you should or the, or the optimum, and that you're going to change direction right, and make right. adjustments. Right. It's making adjustments and not just beating yourself up. You know, it is it is so powerful, that statement of course correction, because, you know, we, we tend to judge everything in life as good or bad or... Right or better wrong. or worse, right or and wrong. And there, there are things that are absolutely black fair and enough. White, but but right a lot of this is a like a lot of it is not. Yeah, the mistake is only if you don't learn from it or you repeat it. Otherwise, it was just part of the lesson of and you correct. Yes, and it's, it's like, and I like. I, I think there's a lot there. So, Sully, 2009, you've been flying commercially for 30 years. You almost did a decade in the military. So clearly, you you're well prepared and probably looking at kind of the back end of your career by now. Did you ever think that that flight that day, 1549, was kind of your final test? I was 57, almost 58. I'd been flying for 42 years. I had 20,000 hours. And in all that time, I had never been so challenged in an airplane, I doubted the outcome. I'd had some challenges, but you know, never something that I thought hmm. was going to be unrecoverable. So no, I... I I thought that late in my career like that, uh, and technologies and especially the engines have gotten so reliable that in all that time I had never experienced in flight the failure of even one engine hmm. in 42 years. Hmm. And I thought at this point in my career, I probably wouldn't. Well, I was wrong. But then I was prepared. I mean, here's another kind of pedestrian example. So one of the things I did as soon as I became a captain, and I was a captain for 22 of those 30 years, I was a first officer for the first eight, was um, we weren't required, but we were allowed to ask the flight attendants to give us a head count before the main entry door was closed, before we departed the gate, if the captain thought it was necessary. And, of course, the company did not encourage that because they wanted the door closed on time and be on time departure, and, you know, they figured it would all work out. Right. Well, um, I knew what my responsibilities were, yeah. what an awesome responsibility that is. I mean, it's FAR 91.3. It says the pilot in command is the final authority to and directly responsible for every aspect of that flight. It's on my shoulders. I mean, every life on that plane is literally in my hands. And so I took that seriously. And so... For 22 years, I insisted, and I would say in the crew briefing when I first met my flight attendants and the, and the first officer, some of whom were strangers to me, yeah. including on flight 1549, I would say, uh, before you let the agent close the main entry door, I want them to volunteer to you a ticket lift count, yeah. and it has to exactly match your head count that you've already come up with. Now, the, in, in the flight operations manual that we had at the airline at the time, it said, if the captain wants a head count, you can depart if with a variance of plus or minus two. 
And I thought, well, that that's okay. <laughs> that that's okay no unless sense. you're one of those two. Exactly. So um, I said, no, it has to be exact. And sometimes the flight attendants would kind of groan or roll their eyes, but most of the time they and I said. And you know why we do this, because if I ever need to have that number, I want it. Right. Okay. So, but I, I never, I, for 22 years, I never thought I would really have to use that number. I was wrong. Huh. But when it, when I needed it, yeah. I had it. So that, that was the, that was the way I approached this flight. And this, that was the way I approached my profession. I had this deep and abiding understanding that in safety critical domains like like aviation, medicine, and others, just good enough isn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I and I kept remembering why I had to do that, and for whom I owed it. I owed it to you. Amazing. You know, we were. I was on first row. You were just across were the wall, yeah. yeah, on the on the cockpit. So we were. This was the last time we probably were this close. There's just a wall in the middle. Yet our experiences that day were so different. And what I would love to understand a bit more is what separated our wall. You know, what 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 your experience was like that day. Um, when did you see the cloud of birds? When it was hitting us, did you ever see it? I saw them probably three seconds before we hit them, but not enough time to avoid. Yeah, them. yeah, understand that. Um, and I actually verbalized it. I said, "Birds, you can hear it on the CVR. You see it in the transcript." Uh, and then they hit us, and I could feel and hear the thumps and thuds as they struck the wings, the the nose of the airplane below the cockpit window level, and into both engines. And then almost immediately. Yeah. You could hear the engines being destroyed. Was it an unusual uh, large crowd of birds? Or I imagine you see birds often. And it was one of the, the biggest, closest uh, flocks of geese I've ever seen. The, the species, Canada geese. Yeah. They determined they, the NTSB used uh, bird experts from the Smithsonian. And believe it or not, one of the PhDs they had uh, analyzed the DNA is a woman named Dr. Carla Dove. And uh, they they identified how many individual birds there were. Uh, how many the, was that? I think it was two in the right and either one or two in the left, but during in the core of the engines. Isn't it surprising that this doesn't happen more often? Well, you know, it it, it requires that you be in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically, and because there's really no way to to see most of those kinds of birds far enough away to avoid them. And there really isn't much technology you could do to help us. Uh, there are some high-frequency radar, radars that are ground-based that if within a close radius of the airport can see certain flocks of birds. Yeah. But then it's hard to get that information quickly enough in useful form to the air traffic controller or to help the pilots, you know. Yeah. So um, the FA puts out generic, you know, be careful, there are birds out there, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, thank you. At certain airports, <laughs> more than others. And and the airport authorities try to limit the wetlands and the, the, uh, the sources of food that attract birds around airport properties to oh, help that. But yeah. these were migratory birds, yeah, they and were, they could be they, anywhere. They were going. And they were just passing through, they were just being birds. Yeah, they were doing their thing. Uh, you know, I, I recall... So at least from my perspective and my recollection, that it it, it felt like a bit of an explosion, right? It felt like something had detonated, mm-hmm. um, and that you know smoke was coming in into the cockpit, and you know the, but what you could hear was you guys, you know, trying to restart the engines. You can hear the engines really struggling, 
and that seemed to take a couple minutes. I would love to hear what you guys in the cockpit were doing as a team because I know it's very much of a team. Um, what what was that ex- you know that what was that exchange like and responsibility breakdown like? Jeff Skiles and I did not have a chance to hear the cockpit voice recording until May of 2009. So huh. what, four months after our flight. Uh, and at, up to that point, we were just relying on our memories of what we experienced. And it happened so quickly, you know. Yeah. But our, it turned out that our our memories were actually quite accurate. That when we heard it for the first time, we had said just almost exactly verbatim what we had remembered and, and said to the investigators the first couple of days after the flight, months before. But when Jeff and I put the headphones on and heard that tape go through from start to finish, those three and a half minutes for the first time, it was shocking to us. Hmm. It was so intense and so quick. It happened even faster than we remembered it. It took our breath away. In fact, after that first hearing, it was so emotionally involving and we had to take a break and go out in the hall and just kind of you know, decompress for a second. And, um, wow. But um, overall, I hearing it, I um, my my recollections and my impressions about it were confirmed. We didn't sound confused or frantic. We sounded busy. Yes. We sounded good. Yeah. We you sounded sound, calm. We sounded organized. Yes. Um, Jeff Skiles, in one interview we done later, years later, said that I was galvanized in action to action. I think he was that he was right. So, as soon as the bird strike occurred and the thrust loss was almost immediate, from memory, I I took the first two remedial actions that I knew would do us the most good: turning on the engine ignition switch so if the engines could recover, they would. And then I reached up and turned on the APU, the auxiliary power unit that has its own generator to mm. provide a backup source of electrical power. So it was important that we avoid having an interruption of electrical power that would degrade our system and lose some of the flight control envelope protections. Wow. Um, and so by starting the APU so quickly, by the time that the engines stopped rotating fast enough to drive their electrical generators and we'd lost electrical power, the APU generator was already online, and so everything remained powered the whole time. And so that was uh, a step that I took out of order that was really important to help us. And the other thing I did was, normally to start the APU, we, we hit one switch that opens the APU air inlet door, yeah. so it gets enough supply of air to begin spinning that turbine as it starts up. And then we hit the second switch to actually start the APU itself. Well, I didn't want to wait the eight or ten seconds it would take for the APU inlet door to open. I was because I knew this APU only had to start one more time in its life, and it was going to be going to a scrapyard or a museum, I guess. <laughs> and and so I, I I started it quickly so it would be online, you know, eight seconds sooner. Um, and that was the, another critical decision I made. To, I I knew the systems really well because it was my deep in-depth knowledge of the systems. What would help us the most? The steps I should take right away, and how to how to save how to shave off seconds to save every to make everything work as as well as it could for as long as to it give could. you a chance. I was I was 
doing what pilots always do in, a, in an emergency, especially an extreme emergency. Exercise all the control I have over the situation as long as I have any control. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the gallows humor for him, for pilots, especially in the fighter community where you have a lot more mechanical problems and other challenges, is you, you keep flying the airplane as far into the accident sequence as possible. Um, I mean, I did. Even, even once we had touched the water and the nose began to pivot to the left because yeah, something on the left that. wing you know, drug in a little more, I was pushing hard on the right rudder in the water trying to straighten like this out. Like a submarine a bit. Because I, I, was, I was trying to keep it going straight as, oh. as much as I could. I pushed the right rudder full to the stop to try to slow that down. Did, so even, even, even after we had landing, I was, I was trying to control the direction to keep it going straight. So, and the other thing, the other part of Gallo's humor about, especially military pilots, is as a matter of professional pride, <laughs> even, even if the airplane is coming apart around you and shedding pieces, as a matter of professional pride, you want to leave all the wreckage exactly on the runway center line. So when the investors come out and say, yeah, he did a good job. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how, that's how professional, that's how these Fighter pilots think about things. It's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give up until the very end, and I'm going to make it look as good as I can. You know, I, Sully, I listened to that recording many times when it got published, and uh, one of the things that struck me was, you know, you, you were communicating. I believe you wanted to go back to a thought about going back to LaGuardia. You realized you're not going to make it. You thought, okay, well, let's try to get to Teterboro. And after you get cleared to go down, you basically say, you know, you know, we're going in the water or something to that extent. And, and, and then you turned it off. You're like, okay, I have no time anymore for this. As much as I would like to communicate with you now, I made a decision it's, it's that too, yeah. is in, and I found it super interesting that the tower was kind of completely lost by this exchange, right? Because they, for them it's also, you know, never happens. And he asked, they asked you to clarify and you ignored it. And it was another pilot from another plane who basically said, he said he's going in the water, right? It was just, in what I found fascinating was how you went from, you know, I, I believe that pilots, surgeons, you know, there's a number of professions that you guys are exceptional and well-trained at solving very complicated situations. And in complicated situations, there is a checklist. And instinctively, you may reorder the checklist like you did, but there is a a mathematical formula that you're always applying. You know, in business for me, I'm always solving complex problems. May have 40% of the facts, 60% of the facts. You have to use intuition, guess, preserve optionality, do a lot of things that you don't do when you're flying, or you may do some of it, but not the same. But the fact is, like, it looked like at that moment, you went from being a complicated problem solver to now solving a complex problem where so many of the, you know, you know of, the, of the inputs into the equation were really unknown. Um, did you ever think about that switch that you made from like, okay, I am a pilot to like now I'm going to save 155 lives? They're the same. That's the job. I mean, but I, I, I did shift focus. And I'll tell you how. You know, I've been talking for nine minutes now about what happened in the first eight seconds. <laughs> That's how intense this was. And it, and it wasn't that I had all these specific factors in my mind and, and had time to actually weigh them at the time. It, that, there yeah. wasn't time for that. Yeah. I knew immediately this was gonna be 
the challenge of a lifetime. I knew immediately how bad this was, mm-hmm. that, unlike any other flight I'd ever had. Um, I remember vividly my first three conscious thoughts. This can't be happening. Mm-hmm. A very Having read about other accident flights, a very typical thought rooted in disbelief, mm-hmm. a natural human reaction, mm-hmm. followed immediately by, this doesn't happen to me. <laughs> in other words, like I said, for, four, for so long, for four decades, right, right. I'd never been so challenged in an airplane of the outcome, but this was different. This is going to be a life-changing event for everybody on the airplane and the families. So I knew that immediately. Um, and then my third thought was more of a realization that unlike all those other flights I'd had for 42 years and 20,000 hours, this flight probably would not end on a runway with the aircraft undamaged. And I was okay with that as long as I could solve the problem. And I was confident I could solve the problem. I didn't know at the outset exactly all the steps I was going to take from start to finish, but I knew I could find a way to land this airplane and find a place to land it and find a way to land it. I had, because there wasn't time to talk about the whole thing and what happened and what we should do about it, I had to rely upon Jeff on his own initiative immediately and intuitively understanding this developing crisis as I did and on his own initiative, nobody should do to help me because I didn't have time to direct his every action. I began to left turn, I keyed the mic and I said, mayday, 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 cactus, I said this is cactus 1539 in the, in the special <laughs> yeah, yeah, moment, yeah, I yeah, got one right. digit wrong. Uh, hit birds, lost thrust on both engines, returning back towards LaGuardia. And then Patrick Harden, our traffic controller at New York Departure, said, you know, turn, head uh, 220. And um, I knew intuitively there were only three options. Uh, two runways that might be nearest. It turned out with decision-making time, we didn't have enough altitude. They were too far away. You know, LaGuardia from which we departed, but heading away from, descending rapidly, the equivalent of two floors per second in a hotel elevator. Um, and then Teterboro across the river in New Jersey, a smaller airport I'd never been to, but I knew where it was. And then the only other place in the entire metro area, free of obstacles enough even to a try attempt a landing uh, like that was the Hudson River. So I, I chose the least bad option and I was glad to have it. But um, I knew I had to at least consider trying to make a runway first. But I, I knew if I tried to make a runway that I couldn't make, it would be an irrevocable choice that would rule out every other option. So I, before I turned toward one of those airports, I had to be absolutely certain I could glide that far, and I just wasn't. I didn't think I could do it. And so um, at that point, um, you know, I'd made, I think by the time at about 80 or 90 seconds, I had made the, the divert decision. And then we were trying to still do the checklist and try to see if there's usable thrust to get back. One of the recommendations that the NTSB made after this flight, I think there were like 36 of them, to improve safety going forward was that we have some kind of indication on the instruments when engines are irreparably damaged and cannot be used and it, had we had like a big red x through it that says it's dead you're, you yeah. don't bother that if that technology existed that would have been very helpful it would have saved a lot of time and instead of trying to spend time trying to regain thrust and not end up landing in the river we could have spent more time getting further into the checklist at the end to see what the recommended airspeed was going to be, for example, that we never had a chance to get to. I had to pick a number based on my experience and other things that might have been helpful. At least we wouldn't have been so rushed. Um, but, um, you know, Jeff did help me a lot intuitively. He knew that um, the, the final 
Well, before I get into that, I should talk about, I, I knew I needed to make a PA announcement. And, uh, and I knew that this would be a PA, it'd be the most important announcement of my life. <laughs> and I knew that like everything we either did or didn't do, said or didn't say, right. not only would the investigators be you know, second guessing us, every airline professional around the world would be second guessing this like they all do. This is the equivalent of landing the plane exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I, 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 you know, I, I took three or four seconds to choose my words carefully. And um, I, you know, we're, we're taught to use the word brace because that signals to the, the cabin crew that an emergency landing is imminent and they should help the passengers by, by saying brace, brace, brace. And, but I wanted to give the passengers and the crew alike in the cabin a, a vivid image, a word picture of what to expect. That this was going to be, without engine thrust, this is going to be a hard landing. I just didn't know how hard. And I wanted to identify myself as the decision maker, as the captain. And I wanted to sound competent because I knew that courage can be contagious and I needed it to be in this situation. Um, and so I said, this is the captain brace for impact. And then immediately through that cockpit door, I could hear the two flight attendants in front. Uh, Donna and uh, Sheila begin shouting their commands in unison, brace, 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 heads down, stay down. I'm sure Doreen was doing the same in the back. And hearing that encouraged me because I knew that saying the few words I had, I'd literally gotten my team on the same page. And Amazing. if I could find a way to deliver the airplane intact, the flight attendants would be able to evacuate passengers. And by landing between the ferry terminals, we'd get everybody off in time to keep us from and getting too like cold. The superpower of the brain. on, on Yeah, and so um, the... Um, so the, I told you about my first three thoughts. Um, the, the, in terms of handling the stress, the three things that I did that made the difference were I, I intuitively knew I needed to force calm on myself because I could feel my blood pressure shoot up, my pulse spike, my perceptual field narrow with tunnel yeah, vision from yeah. the stress. I mean, it was, it's a, a natural human physiological response yes. to this. It was it absolutely, the startle effect was huge and real. It, it absolutely interfered with our ability to perform. But we were performing at a high enough level to begin with that even degraded it was enough. Yeah. Um, what did you do? I, I, well, that's the second part. I, so I compartmentalized my mind, and I focused clearly on the task at hand. And, mm -hmm. and I tried to, to shut out the, the noise in my brain of my limbic system saying, you know, Danger, danger, you know. Um, and then the third thing I did was I, I knew um, that I did not have time to do everything I really needed to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I prioritized. And I, chose, I knew from experience what the few things were the most important. Mm -hmm. Turning on ignition, starting the APU, flying the airplane well, making the divert decision, and then finding a way to make this water landing descending rapidly with difficult water terrain out there um and so that's what i did so i i load shed and i goal sacrificed i didn't worry about damaging the airplane mm -hmm. the airplane's expendable mm -hmm. and so i didn't get in the trap that sometimes pilots do trying to save the airplane i've said you know I, i'm not sure i can make a runway so i know i can land in the water i know i can go that far this will be the last flight this airplane ever makes, but I'll make it a good one so we everybody lives. Right, right. And so I didn't I didn't actually verbalize those thoughts, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's how I kind of got there. And that was a very easy choice to make. Or as Jeff Skiles would later say, geez, you put a $62 million airliner in a river and they call you a hero. Is this a great country or what? 
you know, and uh, do you know? But let me let me tell you, Sully, from the other side of the wall, what it felt like, and I'm sure you've heard it from other passengers, but. Um, because of my seating, because I could see the flight attendants right there, I'm the only one who can see them, kind of kitty corner. Right. Um, it, at first, they felt like we're going back, and then they felt like when you said those three words, I could see in their eyes that they believed life was over, right? Because no runway, you know. Um, therefore, I believe, because I saw it in their eyes, that we really had two options. We were either going to blow up, uh, and that's what you see in all the documentaries, yeah. or you break into pieces, and it was a very, very cold day in New York, so we would have lasted 30 seconds in the water. Yeah. And to be, I really said to myself, please blow up. Like, I, I've always wanted to ask you, did you really think we had any chance, any chance of surviving? In- Absolutely. And my, I was determined to make it that way. I wasn't going to accept anything less. Um, not on my flight. <laughs> not on my not on my watch. Absolutely not. I never doubted for a second that this would work. And um, I mean, I'm I concerned. wish I, knew I, that. I was very concerned. I wish I would have known I, I was, that. It I, was, I, me I was very concerned, and my body was screaming that yeah. it, this, this is a, this is something that's never happened. My definition of success was complete and absolute to save every single life. And if even one person had not survived, I would have considered it a tragic failure that I would have felt deeply for the rest of my life. Those were the stakes for me. And you did not know the final count for a few hours after. It took me four hours. It was 7.30 that evening, still in the hospital being evaluated. When I got the word from one of my union colleagues, a fellow pilot, who said it's official. What did that feel like, Sully? Well, I wrote in the book, it felt like um, the, the weight of the universe had been lifted off of my heart. But I was so emotionally spent, all I could do was just feel the relief. Did you ever have an emotional, like a crying emotion uh, where it all came out? And for me, really what happened when I went to see the movie, I was didn't know what was going to happen. I went early with my kids and my wife and the movie ended and I couldn't stop crying. Did you ever have a moment where it all flew, you know, flowing no. up emotions? No, Laurie did, but I didn't. Mm. But I, I certainly felt the emotion listening to the CBR mm-hmm. and seeing the movie. Mm. I have read, and I don't know it's true, so I want to ask you, given that now you knew that we were going to land, which I wish I knew, uh, that as we were getting closer and closer, and in my mind, again, my my experience of this is I've flown so much that I can almost know when we're going to hit before we hit, right? Mm-hmm. Like feel the ground coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing this mental countdown. I'm really making some very consequential decisions in my life around lots of things. And I grab my arm and I say, I love you. as my way of saying goodbye in that moment. And I'm sure every passenger had their version of something like this, at least the ones who believed it was over. But I, th- what I've heard is that you, you literally, as we were coming down, we still were going probably faster than you deemed safe, and you somehow pulled the nose a bit and lost some, you know, to, to kind of slow it down for another two to three seconds. Is that true? And mm-hmm. uh, how, that, that walk, I would love to hear. That was at 250 happened. feet above the water and 170 knots. <clears throat> and um, we put the flaps out at that point, flaps two. Yeah. And... Um, Jeff Skiles asked me if I wanted more. I said, no, let's stay at two. And the reason I did that is because um, 
had we gotten to the end of the three-page checklist, it would have recommended flaps three, which is um, an extension of the trailing edge flaps a bit more. Mm. Um, but having flown uh, a lot and, and having flown military jets, I knew that with a lesser flap setting, if we were at flap two, we the, the leading edge devices, the slats, would be fully extended mm-hmm. and it would give us the protection uh, of a lower stall speed, the protection from stall, but it would less drag than if we went to flaps three. And I wanted to make sure I had enough energy to trade for a flare to reduce the rate of descent when we touched down. So I chose to stay at flaps two and flaps three. And that was another important choice I made that the, that the NTSB investigators uh, thought was useful and helpful. Yeah. Uh, we, it helped us to have a, a lower, a, a little bit higher nose um, yeah. angle, so it was easier to get the nose up to, to touch the tail low. Um, and then um, at about 1,000 feet, I made that, uh, that PA announcement. And then uh, not long after that, uh, Jeff Skiles knew that the final critical maneuver was for me to try to judge visually looking in this featureless water terrain where depth perception is inherently difficult to try to judge the height at which to begin raising the nose and trading, trading this forward speed for a, a Buddhist descent at rate of touchdown. And he knew that, like I did, that if I, if I began to raise the nose too early, too soon, at too great a height, we would eventually get too slow and, and, and lose lift and drop it in and hit hard. If I waited too late and it didn't have a chance to get the nose up enough, right. we would touch nose first and land too fast in the wrong attitude, and that would be bad. So in order to try to help me to judge this height, Jeff, again, on his own initiative, knew this is part of that wordless collaboration we did. He began to call out to me as in a cadence the altitude as we descended, you know, 100, you know, 50, 30, you know, and, and we know from the cockpit voice recorder transcript and from the flight data recorder information, flight information, that um, we were descending so rapidly in a normal landing with, with engine thrust to make it a flatter, more gradual approach to a landing. Uh, normally you'd, you'd begin the flare at about 40, 45 yeah, feet yeah. and you touch down shortly afterward. Um, I began to pull, we were coming down so quickly and I was watching the earth, the earth oh my goodness. rise up oh my. toward us so fast. It was at 100 feet I began to raise the nose. And from 100 feet to touchdown was only four seconds. Wow. So we were dropping yeah. that fast. And then once once we had landed, and it was it was a hard landing, but it was uh, the deceleration was r- rapid but uniform, and we turned to the left, and I pushed right to keep yeah, it straight. Yeah. Uh, once we'd stopped in the river, and the nose bobbed down, and the river water washed up over the cockpit windows. And oh then as, as the nose came back up in that attitude that you see in the photographs, the water drained from the cockpit windows on the outside. And before us, since we had turned to the left, was this you know, like um, silhouette of Manhattan uh, illuminated by the late uh, you know, afternoon winter sun <laughs> right before us, arrayed like this mural that is and, incredible. Uh, and at that moment, Jeff and I, at the same time, in the same words, in the most uh, amazing coincidence, at the same time, at the same words, said, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought. No shit. Uh, but we weren't, <laughs> we weren't high-fiving, but it was just, <laughs> it was an acknowledgement that we had solved 
the first and the biggest problem of the day. But now we had to get 155 people out of an airplane that's taking on water in the middle yeah. of a frigid river yeah. in January. Um, and so I, uh, Jeff began to do the evacuation checklist. Yeah. And I, my, my, again, I, I decided to, to short circuit to save time. On the evacuation checklist, several of the items that the captain does are things like par- setting the parking brake. <laughs> no, not, not, not a factor. I'm not going to do that. Not going to waste. Not going to waste even a second on that. The lesson so, is all these checks are so too I, long. So yeah. So I got up, un- undid my belt, I put my jacket on, opened the cockpit door, and shouted one word: "Evacuate!" And while Jeff Styles was finishing the rest of the evacuation checklist, uh, you know, like turning the engine shut levers off. Um, and then, um, we began to evacuate and, um, I, I was just, after pulling this off, there was no way I was going to let anybody die for any other reason if I could help it. So I was very alert and deathly afraid that people would fall off the wing and fall in the water and not get noticed or just whatever, you know? Um, and then the first, the first, the first ferry got there three minutes, 55 seconds after we stopped in the water. And by the time I left, the airplane is the last one off, having gone through twice to make sure nobody was left behind. Um, the ferries were around. Was on, the rescue was well underway. And the last three of us in order to leave were our A flight attendant, Donna Dent, our first officer, Jeff Skiles, and then me. What was the thought as you leave the plane to go submerge into the ocean? What, what, what did you say to yourself? I hope that everybody can be accounted for. I hope that nobody wow. falls in and drowns or drifts away or dies of hypothermia did you say goodbye to the plane no i I didn't there was no time for that i just i I grabbed the aircraft logbook in case it might be useful to the investigators one final question i know how the flight changed me and today we're here unveiling the name of the new aviation museum in charlotte that is going to go from the carolina aviation museum to the sullenberger aviation museum in your honor and in the crew's honor and it will house the plane and many other planes. It was a very wonderful morning. Uh, I, I can sense your emotion and my emotions, and that was magical for me. How did the flight change you as a person? It's one thing to know intellectually that things can go wrong, that bad things can happen. It's entirely another to know it very deeply and personally and emotionally that it has happened. It was hard. My, my family and I you know, felt the trauma of the event itself. And we think of it in two parts. And the, the second part of the trauma was the immediate aftermath and the, the sudden worldwide acclaim and attention and um, you know after living a quiet, anonymous life and then suddenly being one of the most famous pilots on the planet uh, it was it rocked our world and it was hard I mean there were good parts to it opportunities like you've seen like today but um, big price. a big price what the and it, I I couldn't sleep through the night for at least a week or two it took me months to get my blood pressure back down and I, you know my just to show you how how hard it was my I was running a lot then too and my resting pulse was like 50 for 10 weeks it was 100 and my, my, my blood pressure was typically 108 over 78, and for 10 weeks it was 160 over 100. 
and that was taking blood pressure medication. So it took a while to recover from it physiologically. But the, 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 the critical insight I finally achieved was I knew I needed to process this. And so I talked about it, I wrote about it, and that was part of why I wrote the first book, yeah. to, to uh, process it. And I knew I had to do something with this. What I finally realized I had to do was I had to make this experience a part of me and not just something that had happened to me. And it's now part of me and it's made me better and stronger in some ways. It's given me wonderful opportunities I wouldn't have had in 100 lifetimes, normal lifetimes. Um, but it did come at a cost. That's hmm. for sure. Listen, Sully, I... Um there are a lot of things that I'm grateful for in my life, including the fact that you and the crew gave us a second chance. I have treated it as a second chance. I have lived intentionally very different since that day. Um, to sit down with you here today, um, it is a wonderful, wonderful experience. So I'm grateful for that. So on behalf of all of us on the plane, to you and to the crew, thank you. You're welcome. Here are the three things I took away from our conversation. I am a big believer that most things in life are pass-fail, yet we are taught from an early age to think of grading everything. Sully reminded me today that when it comes to dealing with someone else's life, there is no such thing as good enough. Number two has to do with this concept of course correction, which is so normal in aviation. What if in life, instead of thinking of things as mistakes or errors, we thought of them as just normal parts of a journey and were able to course correct accordingly to get to our outcome or desired destination faster and better. And number three, it was very clear to me after my conversation with him that 155 of us are alive today because Sully was able to compartmentalize and prioritize in the most dire of circumstances. A great reminder as we ultimately face our own version of crisis to stay focused on what really matters and prioritize tackling the problems at hand.